It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. I can finally start with some real good news, and it's the jobs, which affects everybody in the economy, which resonates with all. And uh, hi, everybody. Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade Show coming your way. Admiral James Stavridis will put this whole Russia thing in perspective with the president, what he knew and didn't know. I actually don't think this is a big story, I not by a, a wide margin. If you had a situation where the British were trying to kill our guys, being bribed by the Russians, that's a story. But the Taliban trying to kill our guys, bribed by the Russians, not a story. They would do it for nothing, uh, for uh, a warm, uh, a warm hot lunch. So we've watched that for 19 years. But I'll talk to Admiral Stavridis about that, as well as this other news about China. Do you know what China's doing? Not only have they rounded up their Muslim population, these Uyghurs, and put them into a concentration camp, they're sterilizing them and rampaging through Hong Kong. Taiwan is next. Mark my words. Congressman Jim Banks will also bring us inside the Russian story. He served in Afghanistan and was briefed. Now, the good news, job gains. Not 2.5 million, which was huge last month. Not 3 million, which would have been huge for this month. How about 4.8 million in June? Smashes expectations. Unemployment drops to 11.1, still obscenely high, but understood. We did it to ourselves. Not a scandal. Non farm payrolls, 4.8 million in June. And the unemployment rate, as you see, drops. The Economist survey by Dow Jones have been expecting. About 2.9. The growth is the biggest leap from the 2.7 in May, which was revised up by 190,000. I, I did not know. Leisure and hospitality, again, accounted for the biggest jump in the sector. My fear is this slight rollback might hurt us again next month, but we'll see what happens. Uh, another big contributor to the decline on the jobless rate was a plunge in those on temporary layoff. The total fell by 4.8 million. So let's keep it going. The one place the president does better than... Joe Biden, every day, the economy. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Do you believe the president has to reset his rate re-election? Uh, yeah, I think he's got to go on the offense. I don't know if he's going to lose or not, but he's got a hell of a story to tell. He should start telling it. Uh, that is Lindsey Graham five minutes ago on Fox and Friends. Reset or ramp up? That's the biggest question facing the Trump team as they get set for the sprint to November. Why I joined Carl Rove in saying you got to reset. Mr. President, close the gap with Biden and force him out of his basement to compete. Number two. No, I think what we've seen uh, is really this lawlessness over the past four weeks. We want to make sure that federal statutes, monuments that the Department of Homeland Security protects, we want to make sure that we have the personnel there and ready. Chad Wolf, acting DHS secretary, war on history, gets a protection force, but has not stopped the attack on us. Mount Rushmore. Yes, Gandhi, Columbus, and even more saints. I'm talking about saints have been targeted by the mob, while both sides look for solutions to military base named after Confederate officers. So let's get started. First off, I told you yesterday. Um, oh, yeah, let me. Uh, oh, yeah, let me try to go to number one next. 
Number one. To say that the CHOP was a failed experiment in socialism is an absolute understatement. But the positive takeaway from this is that the people that owned property and lived in that area and the business owners applauded and cried and thanked the cops and hugged us. Mike Sloan, Seattle Police Officer Guild. Mayhem reigns. Seattle, a no-go zone, chopped as its police budgets uh, get cut while they are taking back their precinct. Same thing in New York. Unbelievable in Los Angeles. They're now transitioning to a different type of force while cutting the numbers in uniform. Minneapolis wants a peace plan, and the liberal mayor is pushing back. Portland and more are cutting back on law enforcement. And guess who loses? The U.S. and all of us and the people who fight for our safety. So I'm still getting the, uh, the aftermath report on what Seattle did with their no-go zone, their autonomous zone. And it turns out there were shootings and there were assaults and there were deaths. Four shootings, two deaths, 25 to 50 assaults. We don't even have that number yet. 44 arrested. It's been a disaster. And this is what you get. This is people say, well, Joe Biden didn't do that. Well, where's Joe Biden's outrage that liberal Democrats are doing that? And many of which are on your advisory board, like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. Remember when this Seattle mayor mocked President Trump for saying that chaos is can't reign and I'll send in troops if I have to cut one. So I know it will shock you that the president is perhaps not giving an accurate or truthful picture. Um, We've got four blocks in Seattle that you just saw pictures of that is more like a block party atmosphere. It's not an armed takeover. It's not a military junta. Um, we We will make sure that we can restore this, but we have block parties and, and the like in this part of Seattle all the time. It's, it's known for that. So I think the president, number one, there is no threat right now to the public. Yes, there is. And it was taking root then. And you are flat out lying. And they were calling for your resignation. And this lawmaker, this liberal lawmaker to the left of you, is leading the charge. In fact, your home address was given out and rioters went to your house. And that's when you decide to take apart this chop zone. The chief, Carmen Best, was told, leave the precinct to de-escalate the situation. As usual, when you show a kindness, when you show a compliance and understanding, sadly, the mob looks at that as weakness. And finally, the chief had had enough, but she was helpless to the mayor. Cut to. But enough is enough. Our job is to protect and to serve the community. Our job is to support peaceful demonstrations. But what has happened here on these streets over the last two weeks, few weeks, that is, is lawless And it's brutal. And bottom line, it is simply unacceptable. But it took place. It happened. And now you got that mess back. And guess what? There on the outside are these hecklers and anarchists heckling you again. So what did you get? Humiliation, death, destruction, shop owners gone for good in many cases, And you're the laughing stock of the country and an example of what happens when Democrats take over, not moderates, level headed people like Harold Ford, not people that you would like to talk to, maybe like Chris Coons, 
These people have no interest in America's success. They want to upend it. And they come off like level-headed people, but they are not. At their core, they're anti-American, as is Mayor de Blasio of New York City. Encouraged another Occupy Zone across the street from City Hall. Hundreds gather to mock the NYPD as they sit there trying to keep some level of control. And now, with a billion dollars cut, that's not good enough. They're still defiling property. They're growing in numbers. They're sleeping in the streets. They are stopping traffic. Yes, traffic that you stopped basically because you shut down the economy and are slowly bringing it back. Way too slow for my time. Here is, um, uh, here is Mayor de Blasio, cut eight. We're going to take this moment in history and amplify it by taking the Black Lives Matter symbolism and putting it all over this city, including right in front of Trump Tower. And it's an important message to the whole nation. It's going to be right outside his doorstep. He's such a clown. There were 100 injured or killed in 83 shootings over the last nine days as New York cuts $1 billion from the NYPD. Fifth Avenue is all shuttered, as is Sixth Avenue and some of Seventh, because it was destroyed during the looting that you let ramp a rampage through the city. Nobody was social distancing as they were destroying the place. And you think it's a good idea to get under Donald Trump's skin and paint in the street. I mean, why are people allowing this? There's not a Democrat that should be in office after this. One of the guys upset is Governor Cuomo, who I have no patience for. He's too good for anything. He's too good to get involved in the city in the unrest. He's not responsible for the nursing homes. He's not responsible, but the, the, the pandemic took root here. Cut 11. I don't know what it means. Well, they have a billion dollars less. What does that mean? Does it mean I'm less safe? Where did you take the billion dollars from? Does it mean I'm more safe? Does it have any effect on police abuse? I don't know what it means. Either do I, Governor, but do something about it. You say you have all this power, you got a Democratic legislature, do whatever you want, including waste money in your stupid Buffalo project. You don't frack to bring industry to the upstate New York, which is suffering, but you don't take responsibility for anything. Maybe you should check with you. Maybe you should get on the offensive, make a speech and say, don't cut a billion dollars instead of sitting back and asking yourself questions. He really he he goes to his press conferences and asks himself questions. Julio Rosas is an example of a person, a protester who's lighting up the cops verbally and they can't do anything. Listen to this. Listen to what Julio Rosas is saying. Cut 14. You guys go to clown college for like 26 weeks for those students. You know a hairdresser has to go to school for longer than you do. Oh, Half of you don't even have a college education to be out here about that. your hands about the people when you can't even read a history book. You want to sit here and tell me that you're educated enough. Traitor. Traitor to people. You're like the black Judas. Okay. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine if you're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, and you have to deal with this crap, these jobless people who just want to protest things they don't even understand and mock you in your education? You're doing it for you're – Afri- you're black. You're a black officer. You're making a great living. Not yet, but eventually you'll have a pension. You're, you're doing something extremely laudable, putting on that uniform, 
and you have to hear that abuse. Listen, when we come back, I'm going to be – I have a lot to say, and so do you. Uh, Congressman Jim Banks is going to be joining us. He served in Afghanistan. The congressman from Indiana uh, was briefed, and I want him to weigh in on the danger to our troops in that lawless country. It's Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Get ready to celebrate the 4th of July. And Congressman Jim Banks always gives back to the country. Now in Congress, first in the military, now in the reserves as well. Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good morning, Brian. Great to be with you. Served in Afghanistan, I see. And you got briefed on this whole Russia story of whether there were bounties on your head, money given to the Taliban to kill you. You were in 50 separate convoys. When you left that room after being briefed, what did you think? Well, I was angry, Brian. Uh, I, I was angry at the at the New York Times first and foremost for publishing a story that will make it very difficult for us for us to ever hold whoever accountable uh, it would be that that was responsible for these bounties if the intelligence is true. But the fact of the matter is that the intelligence is unverified. Gina Haspel, the CIA director, and others. Um, said that it came from faulty sources, faulty intelligence. We we don't know if it's true, but if it is true, our intelligence officials, career intelligence officers in the field will probably never be able to find out um, ultimately who the source of those bounties are, whether it's Russia, Iran, other uh, uh, malign actors in Afghanistan. That's what makes me angry. The New York Times, because of their intense desire to destroy this president, published a uh, a, a factually inaccurate uh, story in their paper simply to attack the president it was a hit job and nothing more. Well, I mean, that's for a guy that served that no people lost their lives, I imagine. You know, we did lose. We have lost guys, not huge numbers. One is too many. I'm with you on that. But it's not like the Taliban needed incentives to kill you. Wasn't it understood they were always going after you? Uh, that, that, that's the uh, that's that's one incredible angle of all this. Yes, the Taliban. I mean, that, when 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 we would go do convoys outside of the wire, we knew they were out there and they were trying they were trying to get us other convoys, others that I served with who 
died while I was in Afghanistan. Uh, they, they don't need more incentive to do that. That's what the Taliban uh, does. But, but Brian, at the end of the day, this uh, it's starting to get confusing. I mean, the story was published on Friday with the insinuation that the president knew about this intelligence. By the way, he was never briefed on it, but the story said that he was. He knew the intelligence and he ignored it because of the the uh, the old tired Russian uh, Trump collusion hoax that he was trying to cozy up to Putin, and he ignored the intelligence, which is that which is absurd. I think everyone in America knows it's absurd. Even the left knows it's absurd, but they keep repeating it. Now, fast forward to today, and the Democrats are attacking him for something altogether different that he didn't know the intelligence. That supposedly he didn't he didn't do his homework. I mean, it's confusing because the Democrats. From day to day, they change the narrative to fit uh, whatever uh, their case might be. The American people are tired of it. They moved on from the Russian collusion hoax. They know it's ridiculous and false. But that's that's what this story was was uh, designed to do was to attack and, and damage a president um, with this absurd notion that he doesn't care about his troops, which we all know is not the case. So this story, the Times followed up today, and they said this Afghan contractor, Ramallah de Aziz, was uh, was named in a U.S. intelligence report as one of the key middlemen who might have delivered cash to uh, from, uh, from Russia to the Taliban to target American troops, and he's disappeared into Russia. So obviously this is an unfolding investigation. It's very interesting the way the New York Times gives you a little bit more every day. <laughs> because they're trying to dig themselves out of a hole. I mean, you can you can sort of see that. You know, one, one thing to know is that, uh, Brian, Gina Haspel, the CIA director, has never released a public statement uh, before on an issue like this uh, to defend her agency, to defend the president. But she was so angry by this story that she felt compelled to do it, because the, what the Democrats don't realize, what the New York Times doesn't realize, is they're, they're not really attacking the president here. They're attacking the career men and women who serve to protect our country and the intelligence community, who do their their uh, their heroic work every single day to keep us safe. Because the notion that um, that the notion here isn't that President Trump failed; it's that the intelligence officers failed. I mean, that if you if you read into the story, that's what they're saying. That because they they determined that the sources um, again a couple they have uh, 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 sources in Afghanistan reported they reported that those were. Um, Taliban uh, captures that they interrogated that that gave them this intelligence. They they determined that the intelligence wasn't um, wasn't uh, veritable. It wasn't it wasn't they, they didn't have enough intelligence to for this to to get to the point where it rose up to the level of something that they would that they would brief the president about because they were probably investigating it further. And that that's what makes me angry about this because now now if it if this bounty story was true, I mean, let's hypothetically say that it was. The Russians are literally shredding all of the evidence because the New York Times told our enemies. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Told the rest of the world what we know, classified intelligence that was never meant to be reported. The, the uh, New York Times spilled it out there for everyone to see, and now we'll never be able to hold those accountable who are ultimately responsible. Well, ultimately, only a few more, uh, about uh, th- we have one minute left. 
Seth Moulton called it treasonous and that if he was a junior level officer and didn't get that information to his troops that he could be court-martialed. What do you think? Uh, he, he's not atta- he thinks he's attacking the president. He's not attacking the president. He's attacking career uh, men and women in the intelligence community who do heroic work. That, that's who Seth Moulton is attacking when he says something outlandish like that. So I, I hope he thinks better of it and retracts those words. Um, this, this president loves our troops. He loves our men and women in uniform. He's worked so hard to rebuild the military that Obama laid to waste. And um, he, he deserves credit for it, not this type of slanderous uh, hit jobs that you see regularly coming out of places like the New York Times. Any proof that those bounties could have been there during the Obama years? Well, yes. I mean, the intelligence dates back. I, I served there, Brian, in 2014 or 15, and, and the intelligence dates back to that point. That, that means those bounties were allegedly on my head, and that's why I take this story so personally. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If this isn't treason, I don't know what is. As a second lieutenant, if I disregarded an intelligence report, didn't bother to read it, and it got my Marines killed, I wouldn't be treating, tweeting excuses. I would be in prison. Really? Seth Moulton, now in Congress, ran for president, didn't go well, uh, saying basically it's uh, treason and the president indicating the president should be in prison over a, a presidential daily briefing, which verbally did not make the cut, but was in the packet, but had a dissenting opinion on it. Let's get the take from a guy that knows all about this. Admiral James Javidis. By the way, the president has a press conference right now. He's going to be uh, uh, touting the job numbers, which were mind-bogglingly great. 4.8 million jobs added in June. And I'm looking at his body language. Uh, He is quite happy. But I'm going to bring in the admiral. Admiral, what's your response to Seth Moulton? How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. And, uh, you know, my feeling is we've got some learning to do here. We need to know a little bit more about what's going on, Brian. I'm sure you feel the same way. Um, I'm particularly concerned, though, when I see the granularity in the reporting that's coming out about uh, dates, names, amounts of money. And really what we ought to be focusing on is less about uh, what's happening in the White House. You know, the Congress will get into that. We'll learn more. What I want to focus on is what should we be doing about this, that Russians uh, quite evidently are putting bounties on our troops. And I can give you a list of things we ought to be thinking about. Okay, first off, uh, let me delve into your statement. You're, you're disappointed, you're upset that we have so much detail because as much as you want to be transparent in a democracy, it doesn't work to the cover, to our security to have this type of intelligence out. I agree with that. And I wish that this were happening internally to the government and behind yeah. uh, a line of confidentiality. I think we can all agree with that, that leaking is not helpful On the other hand, we have got to take a response to this, and uh, Russians are uh, taking actions that are directly coming at our troops and killing them individually with cash on the barrelhead. So it's out there now. The question becomes, what are we going to do about it? And I think we need a strong response here. The other piece of this, Brian, that is getting no discussion is, what are the implications of this for the Afghan peace process? 
which was on shaky ground to begin with. Now this is like throwing a match into the gasoline. And, hey, we all want to get out of Afghanistan, but we want to do it in a sensible way that doesn't just flip the keys to the car over to the Taliban and the Russians. So we've got work to do on the what does it mean in Afghanistan and important work to do on what is our response to Vladimir Putin. Admiral, a couple of things. So you do believe that the Russians were... Uh, dropping off hundreds of thousands of dollars to Taliban leaders who are told to go kill Americans and get paid. So you do believe the bounty, this bounty thing. You don't need any more convincing? I do believe it. And it's consistent with uh, a, a wide variety of actions we've seen Russia take over the last 10 years, uh, going back through two administrations, uh, including supporting Bashar al-Assad uh, in Syria, including uh, undermining U.S. efforts to uh, protect Ukraine, uh, undermining U.S. efforts in Afghanistan itself. Um, this, however, this particular level of action, this is the uh, so-called 29155 unit of the GRU. These are the same folks, Brian, who poisoned uh, the, the individual in Great Britain who had been a Russian uh, member of the KGB, the same folks who are doing dirty tricks all over the world, uh, so, yeah, I think this is consistent with the behavior I've seen, and I want to know what we're going to do to respond to this. All right. So we'll see what happened. The one thing I hope we learn from this is that we have to leave a residual force there, because if we yes. leave, we are going to give it to Russia and China comes in and works out some terrible deal for the Afghans and just strips the min- minerals out. And we've wasted 19 years. You are exactly right. And so uh, I think that could be a, a positive that comes out of this is a rethink and a, a more clear-eyed view of what Russia is trying to do. And you just nailed it. What Russia wants is us out, China in, Taliban who are under their thumb to control us. Um, that would be a terrible set of outcomes, not only for the Afghan people, but also for uh, the West in general, because Putin will tout it as an example of his spectacular ability to undermine the United States. Let me just hit you with three things, Brian. We should be uh, talking about expelling the Russian ambassador from the United States. That's diplomatic. Number two, we ought to be publicizing this. Now that the cat is out of the bag, let us uh, take the what has happened here. Let's strip off the sources and methods, protect the intelligence gathering process, but tell the world what's going on here. That's public diplomacy. And then number three, economically, we had to be putting sanctions on a wide variety of individuals in the Russian intelligence service. And we ought to be considering whether we should be sanctioning Vladimir Putin or Sergei Lavrov for this kind of activity. So the, the problem is, I don't think the administration has signed off that they believe this yet. And I don't think the presidential daily brief revealed that yet. I guess you have great sources And you're saying that, but it's got to actually be the conclusion of intelligence before you do that if you're president, don't you think? I do. And so uh, back to where we started the conversation, what I would hope is happening now is the National Security Council staff is convening under uh, Robert O'Brien, who I think has been quite credible as National Security Advisor. He's a no-drama kind of individual who tries to uh, look holistically and, and bring the interagency together. Hopefully he is convening a National Security Council meeting where first the deputies and then the principals can come in, look at this intelligence. And as you know, there are indications 
This has been flickering around for over a year. But bring it in. Let's play the ball from where it is on the field. Determine how bad this is, what the reliability is, and then lay out the plan to respond to Russia. I'm, I think that's the important step here. And the second important step is uh, keeping the Afghan process moving forward, but in a way that doesn't just flip the keys to the car again to the Russians and the Chinese and the Taliban. So I'm pretty struck by the series of events with China. I mean, they're just showing their colors. First off, uh, a sterilization uh, program for the Uyghurs who are Muslim, and they've been uh, rounded up and put in concentration camps. Then they pass a law that allows them to crack down and arrest hundreds in Hong Kong, breaking the treaty they signed with the British. And you got to wonder how soon until they try to do the same thing with Taiwan. What is the right reaction, the American reaction to this? Yeah, you've uh, you've correctly categorized the march of pressure through the South China Sea, and they will be going after Taiwan. Now, whether that rises to the level of a military invasion, I don't think we're there yet. But you're going to see massive diplomatic economic pressure applied to the Taiwanese. So what should we do? We should increase our military-to-military activities with the Taiwanese. They have a competent military. They've got a real challenge if they have to go to fight with China. But we can help them with training. We can improve the quality of equipment we're willing to sell them. We can um, engage with them diplomatically. I know the president of Taiwan, Madam Tsai, She's extremely impressive, very balanced. We ought to have her uh, profile and visibility rates. All those things would demonstrate to China we're not going to put up with an overt attack on Taiwan. And as far as Hong Kong goes, Brian, um, we should be, and I think Secretary Pompeo has been on the right note here, we should be uh, taking away the economic uh, incentives and good deals that Hong Kong enjoys as a special status, because frankly and tragically, it is no longer special. We've gone from one nation, two systems to one nation, one system. So we're without those are some of the challenges. And the other the other big challenge uh, I think that the president's facing is how far to go with the Chinese repercussions, because, you know, the trade deal was settling down world markets. But the European Union now seems to be woke, for lack of a better term, to the reason and has actually put overtures to us to join them, possibly in a counter to China. And we know Australia got their wake up call and we know they're a loyal ally. We could put together a massive alliance that could really send an economic message to China. Indeed, we could. And um, we could build it, Brian, on an idea that bit the dust four years ago when both uh, candidate Trump and candidate Clinton rejected the idea of something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But it was going to be a big trade zone that got all of the key Pacific powers together except China. And I think that's an idea whose time has come again, probably a different format, different kind of a deal. But if President Trump wants to work on a big deal at the end of this administration or the beginning of the next, if he has one, this would be exactly the way to go about it, make it an economic deal. But then alongside it, you bring in that military cooperation. You need both to really create deterrence against China. What do your people tell you happened with that explosion at the Natanz nuclear facility last week? 
I'm hearing a variety of different things, as you always do when something like this happens. It's it's always tempting to say, whoops, there goes the Mossad again. Uh, but listen, let me tell you, Brian, today in the Middle East, there are significant cross-currents of, of cooperation between the Israelis, the Saudis, UAE, the Arab world is waking up to the challenges of uh, Shia Islam in a way that they have not before. And as the mullahs get more desperate because of COVID-19, because of the massive sanction burden they're laboring under, um, their vulnerabilities get exposed, but conversely, they will lash out more in the region. So um, there could be a number of different uh, proponents to uh, having that be a, a proactive action, the explosion, or never rule out just garden variety incompetence on the part of the Iranians. We don't know is the bottom line. So Bob Gates, who I know you like, uh, was former Secretary of Defense. He had just about every important job over the last 30 years, wrote a, bu- uh, wrote a book two books ago, and said that Joe Biden's been on the wrong side of every foreign policy decision in his lifetime. Do you agree with that? Uh, I do not. Um, I think Bob Gates is somebody I have enormous respect for. You ought to get him on the show and ask him that question. Um, well, he answered in his book, that, Admiral. Yeah, and I would say, uh, as I look at the vice, former Vice President Biden, he's been on the right side of any number of uh, foreign policy decisions. I'll give you a practical example uh, of one where he was ahead of his time. And that was in Afghanistan. When he was the vice president, he was one who said we ought to be reducing the number of troops, making it a counterterrorism footprint in the region. Um, He had a lot of good ideas. They weren't accepted. He pushed hard on that. I I think it's always unfair to say about anybody, hey, in the course of their career, they've uh, been on the wrong side of everything. And I frankly Uh, None of us are on the right side every time, and none of us are on the wrong side every time. So let's try and uh, look at people's records in balance and find where they've made mistakes and find where they've had good ideas. Admiral, uh, if you want to get more of the Admiral's ideas, uh, follow him at AdmiralStav.com. He's got a great book out, Sailing True North, Ten Admirals and the Voyage of Character. Last question. When you see Thomas Jefferson being defiled, George Washington being destroyed, uh, I'm talking about statues and monuments, Abraham Lincoln being taken down. What is your thought, Admiral, who spent his entire life fighting for this country? I think it's a mistake when mobs go out and tear down anything. And I'll add another one that particularly frosts me to the list you gave, and that's Ulysses S. Grant, who was uh, one of the great generals in our history and helped deliver the victory over the South. So we shouldn't have mobs tearing down, particularly statues to the people you just mentioned. On the other hand, uh, I don't think we should be honoring, and we've talked about this before, the Confederate generals who fought traitorously against the Union. They shouldn't have bases named after them. And their statues shouldn't be torn down by mobs, but they should be removed and put in museums. So I think you can parse your way through these different cases, but certainly tearing apart statues of the people you just mentioned makes no sense to me, particularly as mob action. You still look up to Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe? I do. I do. And Theodore Roosevelt, to kind of stay with the Mount Rushmore theme. Uh, But uh, there are... Uh, many who owned slaves in a period of time when that was part of the social zeitgeist. That doesn't make it right then or now. 
But you have to put, as we were just talking about a moment ago, you need to put any individual's life and career in perspective, the good and the bad, weigh it, and then measure it. And then when it ends up uh, a Confederate general who fought against the United States, no, I don't think there should be monuments or statues to them. But I think the founding fathers, uh, people like Ulysses S. Grant, Abraham Lincoln, yeah, I think there should be monuments to them. Right. I think when you're taking down Gandhi and Lincoln, I I really believe we've (laughs) gone too far. And I wish I could laugh it off, but they're actually doing it. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And on the 4th of July. Uh, Thanks for everything you do for the country, Admiral, and thanks for all the help you've given our audience. Thanks to you, Brian, and happy Independence Day. Go get them. Uh, Back with you in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The United States economy added almost 5 million jobs in the month of June, shattering all expectations. I was watching this morning and the expectations were much lower than that. The stock market is doing extremely well, which means to me jobs. That's what it means, jobs. This is the largest monthly jobs gain in the history of our country. The unemployment rate fell by more than two percentage points, down to just about 11%. We're down to the 11% number. We started at a number very much higher than that. As you know, we broke the record last month, and we broke it again this month in an even bigger way. So uh, that was the President of the United States. He is as happy. His body language was uh, through the roof, and he is so happy we added, as should you be, 4.8 million jobs. It was also important to bring up, and I don't know if he brought it up, is when you have 11% unemployment, you have to understand a lot of people are not sharing in this glee. So listen, I if it's 3% unemployment and people aren't sharing, I understand how to hold your fire. But at 11%, uh, Ms. President, you have a reason to rejoice. Uh, the Congress has acted quick. You've been decisive, pushing people to open up. Now we have a, rever- you know, a resurgence to a degree of the coronavirus. We're not going to shut down all the way, but we are slowing down. It makes me worry about July a little bit. Uh, cut 39 Oh, we don't have it yet. Good. So I'm kind of glad because uh, just to express, Steve Mnuchin came out and said that. And I think that was important. To expand a little bit, uh, you have 2.1 million million jobs in hospitality. That's a fraction. I don't know where where you've been, but nobody's in hotels. Nobody is in airplanes. Nobody is taking an Uber. I was in a taxi cab yesterday. He said, you're lucky to get me. He says, none of my friends are driving. So Uber is plummeting because no one's going anywhere because no one's going to work. No one's using dry cleaning because they're not going to work. They're working from home. So you see the ripple effect. Now they're saying we're not going to open up and let you eat indoors. We're not letting you go to bars. That makes me worried. But I am extremely happy about a number that economists could not be more wrong on. They were more than 2 million job projections off. And last month in May, they revised up 130,000. Pretty impressive. If you ever miss our show, go to radio.com. You can always get the podcast. You can also get it at iHeart and iTunes. And go to briankillme.com. Order all my books. You can get it delivered, and I'll even sign it if you want me to. Don't move.
Shannon Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. Thanks so much for listening. We're coming to you uh, live from New York and heard around the world, around the country especially. This hour, we'll be joined by somebody who's got to be real happy, U.S. Treasury Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs, Monica Crowley, after this astounding jobs report. 4.8 million jobs in June. Smashes all expectations and sets a new record. Unemployment still a very high 11.1%, but we know why. Rudy Giuliani at 45 after. He's watching his city melt into chaos. All his great work and the great work of Mike Bloomberg melting away. The police commissioners are hamstrung as they are in Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, Atlanta, and now New York City to incompetent leadership. And I challenge anyone to challenge that. So uh, if Steve Hayes waiting, always love talking to Steve. So before we go any further, big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Do you believe the president has to reset his rate re-election? Uh, yeah, I think he's got to go on the offense. I don't know if he's going to lose or not, but he's got a hell of a story to tell. He should start telling it. And that was Lindsey Graham on Fox and Friends one hour ago. Reset or ramp up? That's the biggest fest- uh, question facing the Trump team as they get set for the sprint to November. Why I joined Karl Rove in saying, reset, Mr. President, close the gap with Biden, force him out of the basement, make him compete. Number two. Yeah, I think what we've seen uh, is really this lawlessness over the past four weeks. We want to make sure that federal statutes, monuments that the Department of Homeland Security protects, we want to make sure that we have the personnel there and ready. Uh, There you go, Chad Wolf. You are DHS uh, Homeland Security Secretary. War on history gets a protection force, but has not stopped the attack on Mount Rushmore, Gandhi, Columbus, and even a saint in San Francisco, while both sides look for solutions to military bases named after Confederate officers. Number one. To say that the CHOP was a failed experiment in socialism is an absolute understatement. But the positive takeaway from this is that the people that owned property and lived in that area and the business owners applauded and cried and thanked the cops and hugged us. Uh, that was Mike Sloan, Seattle Police Officers Guild President. Mayhem reigns. Seattle no-go zone is now chopped as the police budgets get chopped, too. In New York, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, Portland, and more. Guess who loses? Us and the people who fight for our safety. And let's bring in Steve Hayes. Steve, I got to go 20 ways with you, but first things first. In New York... Uh, These idiots didn't learn anything from the chaos in Seattle where two people died, multiple shootings and assaults. They have welcomed another Occupy Zone here, and it's growing by the hundreds every day. Do you believe this? Yeah, it seems uh, deeply irresponsible, both when you're talking about the the cuts that they're looking to make uh, to to the police department's funding, and when you talk about the lawlessness, when you talk about the permissiveness that that Bill de Blasio is apparently willing to to oversee. Uh, it's it's not surprising, right? I mean, Bill de Blasio has to be the worst mayor in America. It has to be one of the worst mayors in the history of New York City. So nothing surprises me uh, with this news. And, you know, things could get worse before they get better with de Blasio. 
But Steve, are you alarmed by Seattle? We had a liberal mayor calling it the summer of love. We had a left-wing lawmaker leading the takeover of another precinct. And this is allowed to get easy coverage from the Seattle Times and all networks. Yet we watch the video as our own reporter gets uh, almost gets assaulted, gets locked in his car. We see Black Lives Matters or African-Americans in the area say, I don't know what this has become. And no one was reporting it. Doesn't that alarm you? Yeah, look, I I think the the way to handle these things is to never let them happen in the first place. And you can't have basically an encampment taking over a, a chunk of the city, a chunk of the downtown of the city, and both for the for the reasons that you suggest with respect to the business owners, but also just in terms of the broader message that it sends. And to have the, the mayor of Seattle identify, sympathize with people who are, who are doing this, I think, sent exactly the wrong message, and then to let it go on for as long as she did sent exactly the wrong message. It's, it's, not an, it's not an appropriate thing for the mayor to do. You can look at the different ways of going about um, handling these protests, and I think you know, you'll, have different, you'll have different leaders make different kinds of decisions in different parts of the country. That's as it should be. But I think one thing we, can, we, sh- we should all be able to agree on is you can't just let the protesters have their way, particularly if they, if they um, move from being protesters to being violent. Uh, to being rioters and looters, uh, I think there's a difference between those two groups. They should be di- they should be treated differently. President got some uh, rare good news, which has not been a good June for him, uh, and it came out with the adding of 4.8 million jobs. He did something I thought was extraordinary. It seems basic, but extraordinary. He had the press conference, read the statement, and left. And I think that shows the discipline that's been lacking. Here's the president. Today's announcement proves that our economy is roaring back. It's coming back extremely strong. We have some areas where we're putting out the flames or the fires, and that's working out well. We're working very closely with governors, and I think it's working out very well. I think you'll see that shortly. He announced the numbers. They doubled projections. Uh, Unemployment still an obscenely high 11.1%, but we know why. And he left without taking questions and stepping on the message. And that was a day before he goes, I'm wearing a mask. Absolutely. I wear it all the time. I'm going to wear it from now on. Two things that showed he might be interested in running a discipline reelect. Um, I'll bet you on that, Brian. <laughs> I don't expect to see this kind of discipline from the president through November. Um, probably smart for him to, to go out and make the announcement. It is good news, very good news for the country. We had some other positive numbers on manufacturing earlier. So cross your fingers and hope that, that this is uh, a signal of more direction, of generally of the direction to come and that we see more of these kinds of numbers. I think the concern is when you look at what's happening with the virus, you have these, these, this very odd situation where we're seeing a dramatic spike yes. in cases. Um, some of that, of course, is explained by the increase in testing, but some of it is not. Uh, there's a real increase in 51,000 new cases yesterday. Um, but we haven't seen the same spike in hospitalizations and deaths, at least when you look at the numbers across the country. Um, either way, if the cases continue, and you had Anthony Fauci earlier this week talk about the possibility of 100,000 a day, which would be effectively double where we are. Now, we will see another pretty significant economic 
impact from that, I'm afraid. So I think this is good news. It's short-term good news, but it's good news. A couple of things. Um, I don't know. I'm willing to say I don't know where we're heading. My first pandemic. But I can't believe the mixed messages we've been getting from the people that should know, that they do this every day in lab coats and like Anthony Fauci. And I think they, while the president and politicians don't get a pass, maybe they shouldn't, I don't know why scientists do. And here's an example of the mixed messages we get as citizens. And you, by the way, I should say Steve's got a very, uh, uh, got a great new publication, editor and CEO of the, the, Dis, uh, the Dispatch, and it's exciting, I know. And if you want to know what's going on, pick up the dispatch or log on. But, Steve, listen to the messages that we have gotten. Eric put this together on just masks. Listen. One of the things they shouldn't be doing, the general public, is going out and buying masks. It actually uh, does not help. It's not been proven to be effective in preventing spread of coronavirus. You can increase your risk of getting it by wearing a mask if you are not a healthcare provider. I believe there will be some very serious consideration about more broadening this recommendation of using masks. We're not there yet. World Health Organization and the CDC have reaffirmed is that they do not recommend the general public wear masks. You don't want to take masks away from the health care yep. providers. But don't get a false sense of security that that mask is protecting you exclusively from getting infected. A face barrier can actually interrupt the number of virus particles that can go from one person to the other. And they now suggest that the general public consider wearing masks when they're going out in public. Although there appear to be some contradiction of you were saying this then and why you're saying this now, actually the circumstances have changed. And he went on to say, uh, we didn't have enough masks, so I didn't want anyone to wear them. Meanwhile, they could have given us a sock. Right. I mean, come on. Now they're mad. At, now yeah. everyone's getting mad at us. Well, how dare you not wear a mask? What was Florida thinking? What was Texas thinking? Well, I don't know. They were listening on March 2nd, on March 31st, on April 1st, on April 2nd, on April 4th and on June 16th. We suddenly changed. So they've gotten it wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Anthony Fauci less than some of these, some of the others, um, but certainly the having the Surgeon General go out, and he was, I think, the first two clips at least, having the Surgeon General go out initially and say, you know, not only do you not need to wear a mask, you shouldn't wear a mask. That's disastrous. I mean, when we know now what exactly what masks do, and I think we, we could intuit earlier what what mask, what role masks were likely to play. Um, so I do think they deserve fault. And I think broadly, uh, other members of the public health community deserve blame. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've talked about this at, at length for the double messages that we got with respect to social distancing and these protests. I mean, the, the, the flip-flopping there, I think, is just unconscionable. And I think it's going a long way. You know, there are mixed um, numbers on how much the protests have contributed to this second surge. Looks like they have in small ways in some places, but they haven't in other ways in, in places that we might have expected them to contribute to the surge. What I think they did is send a message that social distancing was effectively over. Yeah. So you had people seeing the the, the video on TV of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, some of them wearing masks, but some of them not, gathering together. And these are the same people who had been telling us for, for months that we couldn't even, you know, go to, go to a funeral. We couldn't keep our businesses open. We couldn't do the, the kinds of everyday things that Americans were looking to do just to, you know, in some cases to pursue their dream, in some cases just to put food on the table. We couldn't do any of those things 
But because they believed in this cause, it was fine for people to gather and to get together in the streets and to attend these protests. And it's going to make people, even people who had been deferential to epidemiologists and public health professionals, say, forget it. We, we, don't, we don't give you the benefit of the doubt anymore. And it's, it's important to point out in that context that not all of them have had that flip, right? You, you have had some epidemiologists, public health uh, experts, virologists say, no, don't go to these protests. But their voices, I think, were drowned out by the politically active in their profession. And the, the big takeaway has been it was fine to do it if it's a cause you believe in. It's not fine to do it if you, if you have to save a business. And that's, that's a tremendous mixed message. Last quick point on this. Remember, the president had sent really mixed messages, particularly on mask wearing. It was two months ago he was making fun of Jeff Mason from Reuters, who was asking a question at a White House briefing for wearing a mask. And he said, Jeff, take that mask off. Take that mask off. And Jeff said, I won't take that mask off. And the president said, ah, you're politically correct. And then he refused to wear a mask in public for weeks and weeks. I'm glad he's now saying, yeah, it's a good thing to wear a mask. I've been wearing a mask behind the scenes. But you know what? Being a president is about being a leader and making fun of somebody who's wearing a mask at the time that public health professionals were saying that we ought to be wearing masks. I think that's inexcusable. Yeah, you know, I, I can't, I can't uh, really fight you on that one. Uh, of course, he would if he could have that back. He absolutely would have that back. You know, so yeah. Um, and I, you know, you go back, uh, back and forth. That's that's typical of the president. He also likes to, he actually likes Jeff. So I think that that was a little bit of part of it. Uh, Steve, how's the uh, the dispatch going? What's the greatest challenge? Uh, it's going great. The greatest challenge is. Um keeping up with all of the news <laughs> you know we're we're a, a startup we've got a, a 12 person staff we've grown at this point seven times faster than we had originally projected so we've got people signing up for our free emails at the dispatch.com we've got people um joining us as paid members at a pretty overwhelming and pleasantly surprising rate so we're just trying to keep up with everything i think we're doing a, a you know a pretty good job of it but we're going to be we're one of the rare journalistic outlets that's going to be looking to doing some more hiring um and that's that's really exciting so right. we're, we're having fun even even in this crazy news environment and with a heavy, uh, a heavy set of, of topics. We're we're doing fun. We're having fun, and we're we're growing fast. Are you going to make me an offer live on of radio? <laughs> I mean, is that what you're getting well, you know, to? I mean, you know, this is Brian, embarrassing. We do have we do have this position, this fact checking position open. <laughs> uh, we've got we've got a bunch of jobs open. All right, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna get my resume, and I got to type it up. I got to go to the printer and get the right paper. <laughs> Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Steve. Best of luck. And I did sign up. $10 a month is coming out of my account. Love it. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. You got it. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. What do you think about that mass message? I got so much more to talk about. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. 80% of small businesses are now open, 80%. And we think we're going to have some very good numbers in the coming months because others are opening. And especially as we put the flame out, getting rid of the flame is happening. 
New business applications have doubled since late March. That's a number that is not even thinkable to achieve this early into a pandemic. And that's President of the United States extremely excited about the $4.8 million jobs and where they added them. We are now down as a country to 11.2%, which is a bad recession, but that is feasible, tenable, and we're getting back to work. Can you imagine if we can get a hold of the pandemic, this virus, and can you imagine if we could open up things like gyms and malls? If we just open up and compete and live with the virus, we're going to have to live with the virus for a while. And that's simply it. And what Steve Hayes said is so important. Hospitalizations and deaths are down. One death is too many. And somebody in your family died. I get it. You're in the hospital. You're worried. Don't think I'm diminishing it. I'm just thinking about 330 million people. Michael listening on KDWN in Las Vegas. Michael. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. I kind of. I kind of feel that Anthony Fauci is going to, to Donald Trump is going to be what James Comey was to Hillary Clinton. He's not helping. And the fact that not helping, and he's actually as soon as like the economy starts getting some steam to it, things are looking good. Then he has to say something to reel it back to you know throw a spike in the you know the spokes there and kind of throw it off uh, track a little that- bit. Good point. Chris WLNI, we're talking about uh, the monument team, the monument security team. They'll definitely need one in Virginia. Christopher. Uh, Early Independence Day as well. A couple of concerns I have, and and I love your books. I know you're a historian, um, but I'm afraid you're falling into some of the same traps that were being sold from the left. And one is I keep hearing these great generals that are uh, correspondents on your show, as well as Fox, referring to Southern soldiers as traitors. And they were never deemed as traitors. Uh, they actually even received a pension, and their, and their widows received pensions after the Civil War. And none of these men were ever tried. Lee, Jeff Davis, none of these men were ever tried as traitors. Um, because it was never decided by the Supreme Court whether secession was actually a legal concept or not. I'm not defending them. I'm just saying we're falling into the same trap by attacking a group of people that we weren't there during that period of time. Uh, No, Chris, I agree with you. Let's round out the conversation. And if I did fall into that trap, I will say that. I do put it in a different category, though, from Founding Fathers. But I'm not saying, like you said, all all these guys are bad. Uh, And the need to come together was paramount. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. In June, we added 2.1 million leisure and hospitality jobs, 740,000 retail jobs, 568,000 education and healthcare jobs, 357,000 service jobs. These are all historic numbers. And 356,000 manufacturing jobs. And manufacturing looks like it's ready to really take off at a level that it's never been before and a lot of that has to do with our trade policy because we're bringing manufacturing back to our country and these take a long time to get uh, to get going and they're now going 
So uh, this is unbelievable news. They thought they'd get 3 million jobs, which would have been astounding after stunning news in May jobs, 2.5 million, when everyone thought it was going to show a job loss. So the president giving an idea of how much better we're doing. But Chuck Schumer not as happy. Uh, Chuck Schumer just released this. Senate Democratic leader Schumer released the following statement. Today's jobs report may just be a slight peak in a much larger valley. And unless President Trump demonstrates real leadership in fighting the health crisis and Senate Republicans get off their hands and finally work with Dems to quickly provide additional fiscal relief, the pain America is experiencing will only worsen. President Trump must not repeat the same mistakes with the economic crisis that he made initially with COVID-19, ignoring it and brushing it aside now. Uh, now we'll only ensure that things will get worse once again. So that wasn't exactly a high five. Monica Crowley, uh, did you? <laughs> I'm not sure that Schumer's on board with the recovery. Uh, no, I, I think actually uh, the president's opponents found this morning's news quite depressing uh, for them. Good for the country, though. Fantastic news. And I will give the president a high five. I will give Secretary Mnuchin and the entire Trump economic team a big high five. This morning's jobs report from June is phenomenal. It shattered every expectation. And you know what, Brian? You mentioned the May jobs report 2.5. They actually revised that up to 3 million jobs added in the month of May. And you add that to the 4.8 million jobs from last month. We've got an astounding rebound happening. And the Great American Comeback is underway. Well, I too, and I know that you know this as a spokesperson for the U.S. Treasury Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs. You know also there's 11.2 percent unemployment, which is just, you know really high, and we've gotten spoiled. It was down to around three, four percent over the last ten years. So, what do you say to those 11 percent? Yeah, so the president held this press conference this morning with my boss, Secretary Mnuchin, others from the economic team at the podium. And one thing that Secretary Mnuchin said, and it's exactly right, is we are not going to stop. We have so much work to do to make sure that every American is back to work. Every American who has lost his or her job through this pandemic, through no fault of their own, has a job and goes back to work. The good news is, is that the rebound seems to be happening a lot faster than people anticipated. And it's looking more and more like a V-shaped recovery. So a dramatic spike down, but then a rapid and dramatic spike back. When you drill down into some of these numbers, Brian, it's really astonishing. Construction, 150 8,000 jobs added last month. Uh, the service industry, and in particular, the very hard-hit hospitality industry, hotels, restaurants, etc., 4.2 million jobs added. And then, of course, manufacturing, 356,000 manufacturing jobs added last month. And in June, manufacturing hit a 14-month high. So the blue-collar boom that the president uh, began before this pandemic and had well underway is now coming back. We hope uh, hospitality has been still being hamstrung. Do you worry about these rollbacks that we're seeing now, unnecessary in some cases in Texas, California, and Florida specifically? Do you worry about that hurting the, uh, the next report or the next week? 
Well, the virus has proven to be very resilient, and in areas where we're seeing it raise its head again, governors are taking certain precautionary measures, and that could certainly impact the economic recovery. We're watching that very carefully. But also keep in mind, Brian, that all of President Trump's pro-growth economic policies that delivered the booming economy the first time around are still in place. Tax cuts, regulatory relief, unleashing the energy sector, fair and more reciprocal trade. In fact, USMCA went into full force yesterday. That's a huge win for American workers, businesses, farmers, and ranchers. All of these things are still there. So as we are slowly and safely reopening this economy, those policies are kicking back in, and that's why you're seeing these positive signs. When uh, we talk about another stimulus, the president says he's going to make an announcement about minimum wage. It's going to get some Republicans upset. I assume it means raise it. Number two is he's also talking about 1200 a month or some type of $1,200 payment, but he doesn't want to keep people on, give people an incentive not to get a job, which happened last time. So what do you expect? Can you preview for us uh, what might be the next rescue package? Yeah, so a couple of things. In the next couple of weeks, there will be ongoing conversations with uh, members of Congress, congressional leadership on both sides of the aisle, as well as the administration on what to do next. There is still a general sense that since we have pumped down into the economy unprecedented fiscal and monetary response of $3 trillion, that we should allow these programs from the Fed and from the administration to breathe a little bit more. We want to see more economic numbers coming in, unemployment claims, etc., to try to gauge a better sense of what need actually exists out there. The president has talked about another round of stimulus checks. Secretary Mnuchin has as well. So I think in any phase four, um, you probably will have that component. Also, liability protections for businesses, perhaps doctors. We want to make sure our businesses are, are protected as they reopen. Schools, Secretary Mnuchin spoke about that uh, this morning as well, making sure our kids are in a safe place where they can go back to school in the fall. So I think all of these are moving parts, and all of them are still under discussion in a very fluid way. Uh, Monica Crowley, our guest, U.S. Treasury Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs, who doesn't want us to know that, but she's also an incredible talk show host, uh, with great knowledge uh, about elections, but I guess I can't talk to you about that. And it frustrates me. Uh, Rudy Giuliani coming up next. <laughs> no hatchback violations, Brian. I know. I, we don't want that. USMCA is now in play. It's now it. Daft, NAFTA's history. What changes that people can understand and feel might, might impact us individually? Yes. Well, thank you for the question because this is huge. So from day one, President Trump has been absolutely committed to delivering on his promise of fair, more reciprocal trade deals for the American people. He no longer wanted the United States to be taken advantage of, and he wanted to make sure that American workers, businesses, and industries can compete on an even playing field. So he's negotiated these extraordinary trade deals, phase one with China, bilateral agreements with Japan and South Korea, and of course the USMCA, which is actually the closest to home because it's the North American trade zone. He scrapped NAFTA, which had been so devastating to so many communities and manufacturing, bringing jobs back. And what USMCA is going to directly do is generate about $235 billion 
to our GDP and generate upwards of half a million new American jobs. And it's going to do it, Brian, by expanding market access for American goods and services to Canada and Mexico where that didn't exist before. So poultry, our dairy farmers, wheat, alcoholic beverages, which I know should make a lot of people happy, um, exporting from the United States into these markets, which had had severe limitations on our products. Um, to our North American trading partners, it is going to generate a big economic win for our workers and farmers, ranchers, and our businesses. How close is an EU deal? Is that, is that next? So the, the conversations with the EU are ongoing, as are bilateral conversations with the United Kingdom. So we are looking to develop a bilateral trading agreement with Great Britain. Uh, and those talks are ongoing, and they're making a lot of progress. All right, uh, so they're co-equal. Uh, thanks so much. Monica, are you enjoying the job? So much. Brian, so much. This has been the adventure of a lifetime. Such an honor to serve this president, his administration, his agenda. It has been the time of my life. Such an honor. All right, uh, Monica, that hurts my feelings because you used to work with me. All right. So, <laughs> well, then, I still miss you, Brian. All right, that's all I needed. Some qualifier. <laughs> Monica, thank you very much. Great job. I'm glad you had some. You have, it must be great to have some good news uh, to talk about. It's been a very challenging year. Great job, Indeed. Monica. Indeed. Thanks, Brian. All right. Uh, coming up next, Rudy Giuliani. He's watching all his great work melt away in New York City. Shootings, killings, disorder in the streets, cutting back of the NYPD, and a mayor who rather paint graffiti in the street than do his job. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. We're going to take this moment in history and amplify it by taking the Black Lives Matter symbolism and putting it all over this city, including right in front of Trump Tower. And it's an important message to the whole nation. It's going to be right outside his doorstep. Uh, That is Mayor de Blasio, the worst mayor ever. Steve Hayes backs me up on that, who's allowed chaos to take root. He's invited an Occupy movement, the same one that just ate up and embarrassed Seattle, broken up yesterday, not before the father, not before the death of a 16 and 19 year old, not before 30 plus assaults, 44 arrests and the absolute destruction of those four city blocks as well as a police precinct. But now in New York, you have something that is really astounding, and that is shootings up. Listen to this. I couldn't believe this stat. More than 100 injured or killed in 83 shootings over the last nine days in New York City. And they decide to act by cutting a billion dollars from the NYPD budget. And uh, um, retirements are up 49%. Joining us now, the former mayor of that city, President Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Mr. Mayor, welcome back. Well, thank you, Brian. and, And thank you for carrying on the campaign for our, the greatest police department in the country. You did the work, and I'm just recording the chaos. I mean, 503 you know, shooting incidents have yielded 605 victims so far this year. Sounding like Chicago, right? Yeah. It's starting to sound like Chicago, and that we always distinguished ourselves as being so much 
safer than Chicago. So I never believed this would happen, Brian. It's like breaking my heart. Uh, when I came into office, we were the crime capital of America. We had gone through a couple of years of riots, 2,400 murders. And three years, we turned it around, started moving in the right direction. I left it 60% decline in homicide, 65% decline in crime. Bloomberg and Kelly took it to about 75 and 80. And they did really good work. And this guy, in three months, I mean, he's got the city imploding. I mean, these numbers are, are astounding. I've never, heard, I've never heard the numbers. One day we had a shooting an hour, a couple of days, a shooting an hour. We're starting to get, you know, the kind of numbers that Chicago had a weekend before with 110 shootings and 24 murders. It's uh, astounding. I want you to hear what it is like being a, being a police officer last night. This is Julio Rosas screaming, along with other protesters, at our cops, and they're just staring straight ahead. Cut 14. You guys go to clown college for like 26 weeks for those students. You know a hairdresser has to go to school for longer than you do. Oh, Half of you don't even have a college education to be out here. Well, that. the hands about the people when you can't even read a history book. You want to sit here and tell me that you're educated enough. Traitor. Traitor to and he screamed, you're a black Judas to a black cop. I know, and that's the way they look at it. That's the way the Black Lives Matters look at it. But right in their literature, they say black cops are not black. They're considered part of the, part of the problem. I mean, p- part of the issue here is a lot of the establishment community has bought the fact that Black Lives Matter is like a benign little organization. It isn't. It's a dedicated Marxist organization run by three people who admit they're trained Marxists. They're trying to overthrow the kind of government we have. That's their avowed purpose. One of the problems is, like we didn't do with the Nazis, and like we didn't do with the communists, and like we didn't do with the Islamic terrorists, we don't go read what they have in store for us. Well, It's all written out. They want to do away with private property. They want to be able to claim any home they want. Like if they like your home, Brian, they take your home. They want to be paid a salary, only blacks, for the rest of their life. The salaries, the rest of their lives. So they're setting up a whole new class of, you know, people being different than other people. Uh, Mr. Mayor. Very, very dangerous. It's a very dangerous movement, Brian. And the only one standing up against it is the president right now. And I'm very disappointed in the other Republicans. Only a few of them have joined. Republicans should have no problem standing up against this and fighting for the American way of life. Well, I mean, they're not doing that. They're not standing up for the statues. In fact, Senator Ron Johnson yesterday, along with Senator Langford. I can't uh, believe that. They say they, got to, they, they want to swap Columbus Day for uh, Juneteenth because we don't want the economy to suffer and Columbus so, doesn't deserve a day. Another part of, of Marx's training is when you want to take over a country or a society, first thing you do is rewrite their history. They've already done that in our colleges. Then you get rid of their heroes, their monuments. So you can go back and show pictures of the Nazis and the communists tearing down statues in Poland and tearing down statues in Hungary. It's part of what they do. And that's why they're specifically trying to make Jefferson into an evil man. If our Declaration of Independence was written by an evil man, then we're an evil country. So when the president said they're a hate-filled organization, he's right on target. He's the only one who has the guts to say it. 
Uh, I guess uh, Ben Carson said the same exact thing. Uh, he weighed in a little bit earlier. See, um, oh, good. Well, Ben's a great guy. So you want to hear this? Listen to the, the fight against Columbus. Christopher Columbus, I oh. understand the dialogue has been going on for a number of years. The Christopher Columbus uh, statue represents, uh, in, in some ways, the Italian-American legacy in this country. Uh, and the Italian-American contribution in this country. I understand the feelings about Christopher Columbus uh, and uh, some of his acts, which uh, nobody would support. But the statue was, has come to represent and signify uh, appreciation for the Italian-American. And that, and that is Andrew Cuomo pushing back on de Blasio and others uh, right. to keep it. But he's in the minority now. They're taking the Columbus out of Columbus, Ohio. Um, but, you know, it, it isn't laughable because it, is, it isn't what people think. It isn't like just a spontaneous. They've been planning this for 10 years. It's part of their plan to get us divided, to get us to hate ourselves, to convince us that America is an evil country. It was founded by an evil man. Our first president, you've got to take his statue down because he was an evil man. Our, our uh, founding creed was written by an evil man, Jefferson. So this isn't pe- people think this is just like spur of the moment because of the unfortunate and, and, and unjustified killing of Mr. Floyd. But it isn't. This is a plan they've had in mind for, gosh, who knows how long. I can take it back to about 2006 in the documents that I that I've found. So this is a typical Marxist takeover and the goal to move us to socialism. And they're much further along than I think they ever expected to be. They already have Minnesota getting rid of the police. Did you ever believe that somebody would vote to get rid of a police department? Yeah. In the uh, middle of in the middle of a crime wave. But you know what's interesting? You did a poll. Fifty seven percent of the American people are not for defunding the police, let alone getting away uh, getting away from police. Most people have cops in their family or their friends or cops themselves. And they're usually make it a big mistake. Uh, Rudy, you do a great show on WABC where they're we're lucky enough Thanks. to be carried there. We look forward and to I hearing love- from you later. Uh well, Rudy you wake me up every morning. Thank you. Don't go anywhere. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. Thanks so much for listening. Susan Lee of the Business Channel will be with us talking about this incredible job numbers. Almost 5 million jobs added. The upgrade of the May jobs, 190,000. So closer to 3 million jobs added. These are new records for our economy after a new record drop because we locked the country down really in March, beginning of uh, at the end of uh, February. Uh, it's really great news for the country. Everyone except Chuck Schumer who says we still need more stimulus money, which means we go print it and put it into the system. And the president's not really against that, but he made it into a negative. Nobody else can make it a negative. You know how I know it's good news? Because the other channels have started covering other things. We're also watching a statue come down of Stonewall Jackson. Um, 
uh, Stonewall Jackson of the Confederate General, as you know, that's been in Richmond, Virginia for uh, 100 years. They're taking it down. They're taking down Monument Avenue, too. And they did it through an emergency action from the mayor. Yeah, it's an emergency to get away, to get off quickly a statue rather than vote on it and think about it and actually find out people's sentiment to it. Quickly grab a crane. That's who we're in the middle of. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Do you believe the president has to reset his rate re-election? Uh, yeah, I think he's got to go on the offense. I don't know if he's going to lose or not, but he's got a hell of a story to tell. He should start telling it. Reset or ramp up? That's the biggest question facing the Trump team as they get set for the sprint to November. Why I joined Karl Rove in saying reset, Mr. President, close the gap with Biden and force him out of the basement and then you can win. Number two. Yeah, I think what we've seen uh, is really this lawlessness over the past four weeks. We want to make sure that federal statutes, monuments that the Department of Homeland Security protects. We want to make sure that we have the personnel there and ready. War on history. That's Chad Wolf, Homeland Security Secretary. He's heading up a project, a protection force for monuments and statues in our own country. But it has not stopped the attack on Mount Rushmore, Gandhi, Columbus, and even a saint, a statue of a saint in San Francisco. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi, you're San Francisco. While both sides look for solutions to military bases named after Confederate officers. Number one. To say that the CHOP was a failed experiment in socialism is an absolute understatement. But the positive takeaway from this is that the people that owned property and lived in that area and the business owners applauded and cried and thanked the cops and hugged us. And because the cops were forced out of there by their mayor and the police chief was told, get him out to de-escalate the conflict. So uh, mayhem reigns. Seattle, a no-go zone. The no-go zone there in Seattle is chopped out. Uh, the police uh, police budgets chopped up in New York, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, Portland, and many more, and Atlanta. And guess who loses? You and I and the people who fight for our safety. So in case you don't know, over the last day and a half, we've been getting a, an accounting of how bad things are in Seattle, and it was bad. When you talk about assaults, there was over 30 uh, when you talk about shootings, there were at least four. There were two deaths, two teens gunned down the prime of their lives. Cops weren't able to get in there even to investigate. And we find out from uh, the dad that he had no idea his son was even there. He said goodnight to him. He must have got up, went out, and he ends up shot dead. And no one ever tells him. No police come because when they called 911, when the police did respond, they weren't able to get in and were told not to penetrate. That's the state of our country. That's the state of Seattle. We're an embarrassment. More from uh, Mike Solon. He's a Seattle police chief officer, the, the, the guild president, police officer in Seattle. He's a guild president. You just heard from him. Hear more. Cut three. To say that the CHOP was a failed experiment in socialism is an absolute understatement. And I like the fact that you always come back to let's bring in factual information to these discussions. And the facts are is that this failed experiment in socialism brought on two homicides, four shooting victims, stabbings, rapes, robberies, assaults, amongst other crimes. But the positive takeaway from this is that the people that owned property and lived in that area and the business owners, when the police moved in today to reclaim the chop on behalf of the mayor's proclamation to do so, 
the community applauded and cried and thanked the cops and hugged us. Please tell me, Portland, you understood this. In Washington, they tried to do the same thing in front of St. John's Church. It was quickly, they quickly threw everybody out. In New York, they welcome it. I am not kidding. They welcome an Occupy movement. Occupy Wall Street existed for a while, kind of grew organically out of disdain, they claim, for Wall Street antics that crashed the economy in 2008, finally broke up. This is going to end up the same way. And they look out of control. They're spray painting the police cameras. They're harassing the cops. And Mayor de Blasio sees no problem with it, despite the fact that there's been 100 injured, 83 shootings over the last nine days. The two date this year so far, 503 shootings, 605 victims. A total of 272 uniformed NYPD officers have said, I retire. How much more is that than last year? 50% more. Listen to this combination. You would expect outrage and panic from the mayor. Instead, you get this. Cut nine. Our young people need to be reached. They don't need to be policed. They need to be reached and supported and nurtured. And that's what we're doing. Not only a billion dollars you're talking about, another half billion beyond that to create recreation centers, places young people can go that are positive, to create broadband access for young people in public housing. We've got to do a lot of things differently if we're going to change the reality for so many of our young people in the society. And one of the places we were able to find that money was in our police budget. Find the money in the police budget. So take something that has been lauded. You know, people ask to have their pictures taken with cops in New York City and with firefighters. Uh, not anymore. President Trump's had it. And he knows what these uh, police officers do. Cut 10. Well, I'm a big fan of uh, New York's finest. We call him New York's finest policeman. And what he's done to that group of incredible men and women is very sad. It's very sad. I don't mean just the billion dollars. That's a big thing. But even if you go long... Long before this, when they turned around, they turned their backs. His relationship with the police of New York, and these are incredible people, he's, he's, it's been very sad to watch, frankly. And the whole city is devolving before our eyes. So you can't get restaurants back because of the pandemic. They're going way too slow. You can't get Fifth Avenue populated because they still aren't in that phase yet. Then you see all the boarded-up buildings and, uh, and department stores on 6th Avenue, 5th Avenue, and 7th Avenue. And you wonder if they did come back and they did hire people, what do they have left in terms of products? I mean, the Nike store is raided, the Adidas store is gutted, uh, Saks 5th Avenue is destroyed, Macy's is damaged. So they got to get a whole new inventory, they got to hire back people, and they got to wait to have the governor in the United States, the governor of New York State, say it's okay to come back. Ted Cruz, on what we're witnessing in this country. And there is a consistency. If you have a problem in Seattle, you have a problem in Portland, you have a problem in Chicago, you have a problem in New York, you know what the consistency is? They're all Democrats. They're all liberal. They think they have all the answers. Not only do they stand up to the president when it comes to sanctuary cities, undocumented, excuse me, illegal immigrants who are able to thrive there, and it's a magnet, but they stand up and they basically say, we have a better idea of governing. Here's Ted Cruz, cut 19. Unfortunately, the Democrats have, have released the crazies in their party, and, 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 and they are going nuts. And you and I and everyone, we all have a right to speak, to stand up and say whatever your views are, whether you're right or wrong, you have a right to speak. But what you don't have a right to do 
is commit violence. You don't have a right to assault people. You don't have a right to burn shops to the ground. You don't have a right to firebomb churches or police cars. You don't have a right to murder police officers or to murder teenage boys, as happened in Seattle. And that's what you saw last night. You saw the, the, the dad on with Sean. I'll try to play that a little bit uh, later in the hour. Number two is uh, just on what's happening at the presidential race. It looks as though, you know, Joe Biden's got a solid lead in almost every battleground state. I don't think it's going to stay that way. And here's why. He's not a good candidate. He's not Bill Clinton. He doesn't have the team uh, around him like uh, George Bush. He does not have the charisma of Barack Obama. He does not have the energy to do what President Obama and President Trump do. And that is campaign nonstop around the clock. Be energetic each and every time. They don't. He doesn't. He's got a big lead, so he doesn't have to do anything. But it's time for the Trump team to get it together and understand it's about the economy. It's about showing empathy for the pandemic, and it's about showing empathy for the 11.2 percent that remain unemployed. It's also about taking on China, setting up uh, uh, setting up the world to uh, to hedge against China and their expansion and letting them know they got 10 days, 10 days to let us in with all our best scientists to find out what this virus is about and how it really started and start cooperating let alone what they're doing with Hong Kong, let alone what they're doing with Muslim Uyghurs in that country. So Carl Rove writes that they got to start telling that story. They got to start convening jobs councils, not just to get jobs, but I want to find out about the industries. The numbers look really good in manufacturing, look really good in private industry, in small business, 80% they claim are opening up, but the, but the hospitality sector is struggling. The entertainment sector, whether it's movie theaters, whether it's zoos, whether it's museums, they are struggling big time for obvious reasons, through no fault of their own. But Carl Rove says over the next 18 weeks, uh, he has to close the gap. The president's behind with less than 18 weeks to go, he writes, and is trailing more than Harry S. Truman in 1948, more than George W. Bush in 2004, more than Barack Obama in 2012. But in 2016, everybody said he was going to lose. Everyone said he was an easy win. They all said whoever gets the nomination, Hillary Clinton, would be the president. And now, you know, she lost. So he writes with a gigantic dose of humility, don't count the president out. The president has shown discipline. I just tweeted this out. He's shown discipline two ways. Yesterday, out of nowhere, he says, I'm wearing a mask. I look good in a mask. The only president can say that. And then this morning, he talked about the job numbers, and he left without taking questions. Why? Is that important? The president didn't take any questions because they were all going to be hostile. They were all going to be about things he didn't want to talk about, and it would have stepped on his message. It would have found one thing, um, socially, racially, and it would have ran with it, and the 4.8% would not have been in the news. He left. He left the questions for his secretary. I'm Brian Kilmeade. We're going to be back with Susan Lee and then you here on The Brian Kilmeade Show. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Today's announcement proves that our economy is roaring back. It's coming back extremely strong. We have some areas where we're putting out the flames or the fires, and that's working out well. We're working very closely with governors, and I think it's working out very well. I think you'll see that shortly. 
And the president was quick, brief, uh, right to the point, and extremely happy. He saw his by language, got huge economic news. Susan Lee knows this, Fox Business's finest. She normally works at this time. <laughs> uh, you can follow her at Susan uh, L-I-T-V. So, Susan Lee. There you go. Yeah, welcome back. Hey, good to see you. Killed me. Where have you been? Well, I've been I've been on the air, but uh, I've been in studio now for two weeks. Where are you? Um, I'm in studio right now, just below you. I'm on the Fox Business show, Varney & Co., but, you know, I snuck away for a few minutes to talk to you about the economy. So we expected $3 million and we kept our fingers crossed for that. Why did we end up with 4.8? It did very well. So, yes, so the jobless rate also fell to 11%, much better than anticipated. And this is because a lot of people are coming back to work. So states are reopening, as you saw, in the month of June. And we saw retail doing very well, education adding jobs, health services, manufacturing even, and professional and business services. And as you heard from President Trump there, it looks like the individual ethnic groups uh, did well. Adult men saw the rates, unemployment rates coming down, along with women, teenagers, whites, blacks, Hispanics, all across the board. Everyone did better in the month of June. So uh, what does that tell you? And do people get worried now that since there's been somewhat of a rollback over the last week because of the comeback of the virus, people say, "Uh oh, this is going to be short lived. Do they have a reason to worry? Well, so these are June jobs numbers, which is a bit delayed and some would say lagging. But the, we also got jobless claims for the week today, which some say is probably a better indication as to how the exact situation is today. Still not terrible. I mean, uh, jobless claims actually, yes, it went up to 1.4 million, a little bit higher than anticipated. But it's actually been down now for 12 straight weeks. Continuing claims is a bit concerning. Those are the, the people that are on these unemployment claims for longer for more than five weeks. And that actually went up closer to 19 million. But look, states are reclosing and pausing some of their reopening. And we know from the June jobs numbers that once states do reopen and it's all safe and all clear, jobs come back. We hope. Manufacturing is going up. What I'm surprised at is hospitality has an improvement because there's sucking wind everywhere that I see from uh, from airplanes to hotels to catering, restaurants. (laughs) Yes. Well, okay, so you were on the road, right? You took an RV across the country for just around two weeks' time. And a lot of people are doing that. In fact, I think domestic travel is more popular than international travel since people aren't getting on planes. So there has been a comeback in hospitality. You saw those huge numbers in May. So I think the bulk of the hospitality jobs gains or the recovery you saw in the month of May, there were still a little bit in the month of June. But I wanted to ask you about your RV trip because I think that's a very good economic indicator because gas prices are what? They're pretty low. They're cheap, right? And a lot of people are yeah. hitting the roads. I mean, I was, so uh, I don't have the, the it doesn't take diesel, it took gas. Yeah. And you fit in every, all gas stations and it was $1.99 in most places. Wow. And maybe two oh five. But, you know, it only gets seven miles to the gallon. So you are right. stopping. They don't want you to, they don't want you to get below a half because you got yeah. the refrigerator rolling and who yes. knows what else is happening back there. Everyone else is having fun except the driver. Well, so, and did you have to drive most right, of the Right, but it is raging. It's up 300%. 300% wow. RV sales. They can't make them fast enough. No, they can't. But that's, you know, the, the travel has changed. As you heard from Airbnb's founder, he says, look, travel, it ha- the travel industry has changed forever. I mean, international travel isn't that attractive anymore when you have to fly 15 hours cooped up in a plane with people you don't know and who knows what they're carrying. So people are staying domestic instead. And, you know, people are hitting the roads like you did over the summer, which is renting the RVs. They're going to local small communities, 
close by. That'll still be popular. In fact, that's picking up domestically here in the U.S. And that's a good sign, by the way. If, if Americans are spending their travel dollars domestically inside U.S. borders instead, I mean, you can think about how much money that will be, given that travel is an $8 trillion industry. So, uh, Susan Lee, our guest, and last question for you. What's changed forever? So many people working out of their house and are being affected. Yeah. I mean, the whole Fox Nation staff is editing at home and producing at home, <laughs> doing right. it on FaceTime. How and did you enjoy broadcasting from home? Did you did you like? Oh, it? I was never in my. Like uh, I was in my. Um, never in my house. I had a small studio. It's terrible. <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> yeah, terrible. I need to be around felt, people. Yeah. Yeah, people felt a bit cooped up. and But the, look, work from home is going to be here permanently, I think. In fact, th- those trends have accelerated by five years at least. And just how we live our lives. So everything digitally and all the companies, by the way, that provide these easier, convenient digital services are the ones being rewarded on the stock markets. So the Zoom communications of the world, you know, the video conferencers. Also, you have Okta, which makes you, you know, makes companies easier to provide their human resources and other services online, and Square. These are like payment companies, online banking, and of course the Amazons of the world and the Shopify's. So yes, I mean, the world has changed. Those habits will be keeping, and it looks like the world has gone more digitally. I think that's more concerning, don't you think, from a, I guess, a behavior perspective, Brian? Because no one's going to want to communicate or hang out anymore. Listen, Susan, it was bad enough with our iPhones, but now they're telling us to stay six feet away. Wear a mask. I don't even know what you look like. I don't know what you sound like. I can't understand what you're saying. And we don't work together. So fantastic. Well, I'll see you at the Christmas party. Susan Lee, thanks. Daniel Kaplan on Sports Today. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. It was disappointing. It was embarrassing at times, back and forth. You know, there, there is no trust, I should say, is the best way to put it. But to, it was pretty sad to see the back and forth being played out publicly in, in a time like now. And, uh, you know, we have so many people filing for unemployment throughout the country, over 30 million people, 40 million people with no jobs. And they, they really don't want to hear owners and players going back and forth about uh, how much money they deserve and how much money they need. Look, I, I was a player. I feel as though the players should fight for everything that they feel as though they should have. And uh, I'll always support them in that sense. But in this particular case, I, I think some things should have been done behind the scenes. Uh, and it wasn't. And that just explains to you, that's Derek Jeter, now owner of the Marlins, explaining to you what went on behind the scenes, why we have a 60-game schedule, and why spring-slash-summer training is starting restarting now. Joining me now is one of the guys who understands the business of sports as good as anybody in the country, Daniel Kaplan, sports, uh, former Sports Business Journal, now Sports Business Reporter at The Athletic, which is the go-to place for all everybody who wants to know what's going on in sports. Uh, Dan, it looks like you finally have something to cover. <laughs> well, uh, since I cover the business side of sports, I've actually had a lot to cover the last couple of months. What, kind of, what is baseball going to look like? Well, unfortunately, it's not going to look like what we uh, are used to seeing it look like. Uh, they're largely played divisional rivals, uh, teams within 
the region. It's going to be 60 games. And obviously, the, the big news will be if there are any COVID outbreaks among these teams and uh, which players get affected. So it's, it's not going to be a typical season. So it's going to be 60 games, and that's all uh, the commissioner wanted. Uh, here's what he told Dan Patrick, cut 42. Look, I think the most important thing to our fans is that we're going to make every attempt to get the game back on the field. You know, I know some people have talked about longer seasons, 60 too short. The reality is, the reality is we weren't going to play more than 60 games, no matter how um, the negotiation with the players went or any other factor. 60 games is the outside of the envelope given the realities of the virus. So the, the players wanted to play more games? The players wanted to, at one point, they had believed they had a proposal for 114 games. Uh, the league had proposals for more than 60 games, but they were contingent on the players agreeing to a pay cut from their prorated salaries. And that, of course, was the big dividing point in the negotiations. The players declined to take any kind of pay cut from prorated salaries, and the owners uh, were steadfast that there should be. Are they, all play- are they now reporting to their spring training sites? Uh, in some cases, they're reporting to the stadiums. Uh, in some cases, the spring training sites. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all over the map, really. Interesting. And there's a couple of players or three players have said, I'm not coming back. Why? Well, uh, because uh, you might have a player who has a family member who uh, has a vulnerability, is at risk. You might have a player who just decides it's not it's not worth the, the health risk to to play for a third of your less than a third of your pay. pay. Um, there, there's a whole host of reasons why it may be, but still, at the end of the day, there'll be plenty of players to play 60 games. I, I, I know I'm looking forward to hearing it. Now, there's not seeing the games. I'm curious. I don't know if you could answer this, but the games are not going to have fans to begin with. I guess you can't rule it out for the season, but Joe Buck has talked about them pumping in crowd noise. But how do you pump in cheering on a long fly ball or a gasp? <laughs> I mean, I could hear a murmur, but I can't hear the cheering or booing. Are we going to hear fake cheering and booing like radio, the radio uh, drama class? Well, there, there's two types of pumped in crowd noise. There's the actual crowd noise for competitive reasons within the stadium, view pumping crowd noise when the opposing teams uh, in football, for example, do you pump in crowd noise when the opposing teams uh, on offense? Uh, and then there's the crowd noise that you artificially pump in for the for the TV audience. Uh, in in Germany for the Bundesliga, uh, there's no pumped in crowd noise for the games, and you have the option on your TV to accept fake crowd noise or watch the game without crowd noise. So we could we could see baseball, football. Basketball, a whole host of different options. Rob Manfred on what it would take to pause the season. The players are responsible to take their temperature, and every other day they're going to be tested. Cut 43. If you have to pause the season, how long can you pause this season? You know, I don't have um, a, a, a firm number of days in mind. I, I think the way that I think about it, Dan, is um, – on the in the vein of competitive integrity, right? In a 60-game season, if we have a team or two that's you know really decimated for um, with the number of uh, people who have the virus and can't play 
for, you know, any significant period of time, it can have a real impact on the competition. And we have to think very, very hard about what we're doing. Interesting. So let's pivot. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see if any, I hope it never happens, but if it runs through a team, uh, do they just postpone those games, have double headers later, later on, or do they say, okay, we got to get rid of the Rockies. We got, we can't have the Mets. Uh, the Mets are too riddled with the virus. I, I, you know, these are all unanswerable questions right now. There's no, there's no template. Uh, each, each league has been asked, uh, what, how, how do you define an outbreak? How many players do you uh, have to get COVID before you shut down? And the, the, the knee-jerk response has been, we'll rely on local health officials to help guide us through that, CDC, that sort of thing. So I don't think there's any answer right now to how many, how many before opposing teams don't want to play or the MLB shuts it down. Uh, but, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be trial and error is my guess. All right. Uh, right now, um, Daniel Kaplan, our guest from The Athletic, trying to make heads or tails out of sports is about to ignite. First game will be? Uh, baseball? Yep. Uh, I've got to imagine they're going to go big market. It'll be a Yankee game. Yeah, uh, but it was scheduled to begin, I guess, on July 23rd and end on September 27th. All right, the NBA, they were the first, I believe, to cut a deal, even though the MLS is doing some type of tournament fa- uh Tournament set up in Orlando already. They haven't played games yet. But Adam Silver, the commissioner, uh, has cut a deal. They have very good relations with the players. And now, how many teams are going to Orlando for the next three months? And how many teams aren't? Well, it's about eight or nine teams are not are, are not going, and uh, they're going to play out the regular season, which is just a handful of more games, and then they'll start the playoffs. So. All those teams that are going won't be there the following months. Once teams drop out of the playoffs, they they depart. So it's not it's not the full 22, 23 teams in Orlando the whole two three months. So what's interesting is some of these players have dropped out already. I mean the Nets are decimated. They obviously don't have Kevin Durant. Uh, they don't have. Uh, they lost uh, uh, Dinwiddie. I think is also out. Is that true? I mean some of these players uh, are just he- not going to make the trip. Uh, he is unclear. I think with Dinwiddie, whether whether he's going to make it or not, he has he can cast a quarantine. And I mean, you you're going to have scenarios perhaps where players come down with COVID, quarantine, and then come back. So just because a player has COVID doesn't mean they're out for the season. They've approved the plan with 22 teams. It'll start on July 31st. There'll be eight more regular season games followed by a full four round playoff bracket. Will the division stay the same? The conferences stay the same? Have they have they juggled that? They've juggled it a little bit. It'll be largely the same that we're we're used to seeing. Um, they 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 have they have tinkered with, with with the formula, but still, at the end of the day, when we see the NBA Finals, it will be the West versus the East. Do you expect uh, everyone to be breaking the CBA and be kneeling on the national anthem, wearing different uh, jerseys? Well, you, that, that, you know, you, you raise an interesting point, which the the NBA actually has it in the CBA that the players must stand for the national anthem. So we're going to well, we'll have to see what happens in the NBA, and we do know that the NBA is going to allow players to put political statements on their on their jerseys. So uh, it's going to be it, it's going to be interesting to see. That's for sure. 
How about the push to postpone next season? If this comes off, six weeks later, they're going to be starting to play the 20, uh, 2020, 2021 season. Mark Cuban says, push that back to Christmas. Have you heard any progress on that? No, I've not heard progress on that. that that's a safe assumption that the next season gets postponed. There was that, there's been talk for years in the NBA about starting the season around Christmas and pushing into the summer. Uh, they, they, they hadn't gotten any traction until the, the COVID. Something that we see with these sports that they get pushed. And the one problem with getting pushing the NBA into the summer months is every four years is the Olympics. And the NHL in, in February during the Winter Olympics every four years has to start, stop the season. So uh, by pushing the NBA into the summer every four years, you might have to st- stop the season. NFL now, uh, this is kind of news. The NFL has decided to cancel week one and week four of the preseason. Thankfully, I never like preseason <laughs> games. I have no idea why they do it to this extent. They could do it all in scrimmages. I guess it's a money thing. So they'll play just two games. Camps open up on July 28th. First week of preseason will begin August 20th. Uh, so that's good. Uh, that's good news. The NFL has been very determined to start on time. Do they still have hurdles to clear? Oh, well, clearly. I mean, they, they're trying to figure out how to get fans in the stadium. They're trying to negotiate with the players on health, health and safety protocols. They're not playing a bubble. They're not going to be playing in a bubble like the NBA. Uh, so they'll be relying on players and their families to, you know, best practices, act responsibly. Uh, as we know, the uh, football is one of the least socially distanced <laughs> yeah, I know there can be. Uh, so, I mean, they're banging into each other. And you also have players, you know, you think of the large offensive linemen, they're in high-risk categories, uh, sleep apnea, asthma, uh, overweight. Uh, these, these are all high-risk categories. So there will be constant testing, cleaning, but uh, it'd be shocking if, you, if there weren't a number of cases, COVID cases during the season. Very interesting. So you write, too, that the fans who go might be asked to sign a waiver to say, hey, uh, don't sue me if you get sick. Uh, that's right. We, uh, we actually at the Athletic reported that yesterday. Uh, the, the league next week is going to deliver to teams a whole host of best practices for having fans back in the stadiums. And, and one of those is likely to be a proposal that fans sign a liability waiver. Whether the liability waiver hold, would hold up in court is, of course, unclear. It's unclear with any, any waiver, but uh, clearly a, a fan entering a, a, a sporting facility uh, assumes a certain level of risk. Think, think about foul balls and Major League Baseball, and this would be like that. I understood that's on your ticket. So in terms of just pure uh, sports, Dan, you must be, you, you, we're all fascinated because we've never been down this road before as a country. And when sports stopped, never been, saw that as a international, uh, uh, internationally, the same thing happened with everyone really beginning with the NBA. We don't know how we're going to handle it. Overall, looking at the league and their and their flow chart of what to do if something goes wrong, what league has impressed you the most? Well, I, I, again, it's, it's 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 the NBA, uh, and I mean, I know you know you, we could knock them for now being in the Orange County or Florida where there's high outbreaks of coronavirus, but uh, you know they were the first to stop playing. Uh, they were the and they were the first to come up with this whole bubble concept. And uh, it, there's risks involved, but I think it's a much better idea than these the baseball, football, which are playing just playing as normal and uh, without fans, but playing as normal, having fan, the, the players come and go 
uh, you know, from hotel to stadium to home. Uh, there's just so much more risk involved than that. And Dan, lastly, uh, the good news is we can talk sports a little bit. The big news is Cam Newton will look like mm-hmm. he might be replacing Tom Brady with the Patriots. So Randy Moss, who also came to the Patriots late in his career, said this about the signing of the free agent quarterback. I think we are getting ready to really see how fun it that offense can really be. You know, not discrediting anything that Tom accomplished because he accomplished some great things, but I think being able to have a guy like Cam Newton that can run the ball, they're able to spread guys out, and then being able to be that viable threat in the passing game that he could just tuck the ball and run. So I just think that what we've seen coming out of New England for the past, let's say, 20 years, you know, there is going to be a change in New England, but I think we're going to see them having a lot more fun out there, and Cam Newton is going to give them that opportunity. Well, he's only, he's only what, $557,000 signing bonus, a million dollars guaranteed? What a bargain. It is a bargain. I mean, there'll be more if, if he hits certain thresholds, but uh, I, it's look, it, it, it's, a, it's a low-risk deal for the Patriots. If it doesn't work out, they move on to the, ne- the next guy. Uh but uh, if it does work out, and Cam Newton has been a hell of a quarterback in his career, uh, injured the last couple of years, it's another savvy P- Patriots deal. It does. It looks interesting. And I'll tell you one thing, people are going to be watching Tampa, and they're going to be watching New England, and maybe uh, Cam Newton will be the most unlucky person around. He's got the best team, the best franchise, but he has almost no weapons. There is no Randy Moss on that team. Well, uh, I mean, they... They have a few players on the on, on offense that you know are, are threatening. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, uh, name escapes me right now. The, the the wide receiver who was Super Bowl MVP. Uh, so uh, they, they do have they do have weapons, but, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 remember they do play in the AFC East, so they they they'll be competitive. All right, uh, listen, Dan, it's going to be exciting. Uh, I hope it works. Everyone's pulling Justin for the Edelman. games to work. Justin, Justin Edelman, that's who I was thinking of. Yeah, uh, Edelman there. If he's, I think he see if he's healthy. Uh, Dan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you along the way. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Uh, at Kaplan Sports Biz, if you want to be following Dan on what's happening. He's got great sources, too. When we come back, I will play you a montage that will explain why there's so much confusion when it comes to masks in America. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. So the President of the United States made news when he said, I'll wear a mask. I could kind of good in it. A little like Lone Ranger. Not really, Mr. President. One covers the mouth, one covers the eyes. But... I know what he means. There was confusion on the masks. And I don't blame you. I don't blame him. I blame the scientists. Let's look back at what they've told us over the last few months. One of the things they shouldn't be doing, the general public, is going out and buying masks. It actually uh, does not help. It's not been proven to be effective in preventing spread of coronavirus. You can increase your risk of getting it by wearing a mask if you are not a healthcare provider. I believe there will be some very serious consideration about more broadening 
this recommendation of using MASH. We're not there yet. World Health Organization and the CDC have reaffirmed is that they do not recommend the general public wear masks. You don't want to take masks away from the health care yep. providers. But don't get a false sense of security that that mask is protecting you exclusively from getting infected. A face barrier can actually interrupt the number of virus particles that can go from one person to the other. And they now suggest that the general public consider wearing masks when they're going out in public. Although there appear to be some contradiction of you were saying this then and why are you saying this now, actually the circumstances have changed. So you're saying, Fauci, you were lying to us, the circumstances. Well, now we have enough masks. Well, you also told us how to make one with a sock, uh, with a uh, umbrella. I mean, there's uh, a bandana. If you are wondering if you should really be wearing a mask and if you're being ridiculed at giving looked askance, if you're slow to put up your mask, you point back and say, well, you've told me everything different under the sun since this started. Why are we to believe this? But we're better off wearing masks right now. And I'm so glad the president's doing it. It shows he's in it to win. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.